We'll pray in a second here, but I just want to give you a brief overview of what we're going to do in the book of Philippians and what will happen today, because it's a little different. Um, I've already had the jokes about my name and the book I'm preaching, so don't worry about that. That is not why I chose it, and it's spelled differently. So we have six weeks in the book of Philippians, today being an overview. I want to challenge you. Several of you have already come to me and said, hey, I did this. Great, because you remember in Micah. I said, you can listen to the book of Micah. You can listen to the book of Philippians in less than 20 minutes. And many of you have already read it and listened to it a couple times. Amazing. You can read it and listen to it throughout the series sermon. You could do it every day on your run. I don't know if you run a lot like I know some of the graves do. You could listen to it five or six times. Um, I don't know. But once a day, getting it all into your heart and mind and allow the Lord Jesus to really speak to you through the book. Um, So you come Sunday prepared uh, for what he wants to do in your life and how he wants to change you through the book. Um, So specifically what will happen today is I'm going to read a portion of Acts 16, not all of it, for the context it provides for the church at Philippi that's important for us. I think it's really good to hear how the church started. It's about 10 years old at the time of writing, most people think. And then we're going to read Philippians. Uh, I have two of my good friends here, Matthew and Nathan, going to read it, two chapters each and I'll direct them to do that, and then we're going to have a little bit of overview at the end of that with some comment in between. So unlike Micah, which I think I learned a little bit there, I don't, we're not going to just have you listen to seven chapters in a row. We're going to break it up a little bit. I think that'll be helpful. I hope it will into the Lord for you as we listen through. So let me pray now and then um, begin. Father, we are, as, as we are singing and the book of Philippians tells us, completely dependent on you to work in us and to give us the desires that are right and honoring to you and to love you. Just pray that this book would serve our church to that end, that each one here would be changed by your spirit to love Jesus more, to esteem him better um, in their hearts, that more people would see the light that shines through us for his glory. It's in his name I pray. Amen. So I'm going to read from Acts 16. I'm going to begin in verse 25. I'm only going to read about nine verses through 34. Um, just to give us the context. On your own, you can go back and read the entire chapter. It provides more than what I'm going to read today about how Paul came to preach and to share Christ at Philippi. Uh, This is ESV, so Acts 16, 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken And immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to, who, and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. I listened to Tom's last sermon on the book of Acts, and it's just cool, the similarities between that guy's house and this guy's house throughout the book of Acts, and you'll get here eventually, I know. So a little preview to that 
passage. You notice in there some, some things, too. As we read through Philippians, there's joy there. There's the fear falling down and many other things that maybe you will connect. I hope uh, you will from Acts 16 to Philippians. Okay, so I like pictures. Um, I hope some of you guys do too. It helps us put into context what's going on. And so up on your screen, you see Paul's second missionary journey. Um, and this is really corresponding to Acts 16, 11 through 15. Just briefly, there's a river or a creek or whatever it is. It's not really a river, a small stream that's by there. This is Maybe somewhere similar to this, even where he would have met, Paul would have met Lydia, the first person to believe in the church at Philippi. There's an overview of the city. It's not a huge city, um, relatively small in its day, but it had some importance. It was called the Little Rome because in 42 BC, Augustus won a battle there and actually gave that city the privilege of being a Roman colony. Now, there's a lot we could say about that that's not super important for the book, but it took on more significance. And this was about 80 years before Paul set foot in the city. So it was growing in importance. More people were there, particularly ex-military people, who it was kind of common for the emperor to ensure the loyalty of his ex-soldiers to give them land. And so he gave them land in different colonies around the, uh, the empire. And so this one became a Roman colony in that regard. And it didn't grant citizenship to everyone, but it elevated the privileges of people that were living in that city. Enough, I think, about that. But it is important to note that there were ex-military people there. Well, although they would have been a minority, that plays into the book. Um, again, I said it was written um, maybe 80 years after that happened, about 10 years after Paul is in Philippi for the first time. So what we just read, I think 10 years later, is what we're going to read, somewhere around 61 AD. And in addition, it's important to note, from Acts 28, we know that Paul was where? In prison. And it's throughout the book of Philippians, under house arrest in Rome, responding to some um, needs brought by a person we'll read in the book, Epaphroditus. Okay, a couple of other cool pictures here. Um, I like particularly the bottom right. Just take note there. These are ruins of the city of Philippi. The, the big structure on the upper left is one that was built later, but the bottom right one is maybe one of the sites where Paul was actually sharing Christ in the marketplace with the people. And later on, there's some kind of debate about whether he went to the Roman era one or the Greek one, but regardless, he was actually beaten with rods here, somewhere very near here, this actual location. To me, it was just cool to see in real time, if you will, what was going on and where Paul was at the time. One more little slide for that. This one's even cooler to me. If, you, if you'll notice, I'm going to go back for a second. See that little hill there on the upper right? Uh, the bottom picture here is a view down from that hill, out of the jail, and that's a jail. Now, a lot of people think this is where he was in prison with Silas, possibly. Not 100% sure, but it's cool to look like that could have been where the apostle was in prison, and where the earthquake happened, and just kind of where he was working and doing God's will in that city. Pretty neat, in my opinion. And so, with that in our minds, kind of setting ourselves in Macedonia, in Greece, I want to now move on to the book of Philippians itself. And I want to begin with um, a statement and kind of an illustration. I think the book of Philippians asks us, how are we going to continue to stand firm? 
You know, Philippi might even be considered Paul's sending church, at least one of them. They gave to him like five or six times at least money. And so it's a thank you letter in some regards, but it's not just thank you. It's, hey, here's a challenge. How are you going to continue to stand firm? Relatively good church, I think, overall, and we'll get into that in later sermons. But how are you going to continue to stand firm? And not just the regular old attenders, but everyone. He says in chapter 1, verse 1, with the overseers and deacons. So if you're an elder here or a deacon, this isn't just for everyone else, it's for us as well, to hear how we as a church can continue to stand firm in the Lord. And standing firm, I think, needs a little bit of help here, um, just to understand what the context was. So it was like obviously just standing firm, someone not pushing you down, but it came to mean doctrinal beliefs or convictions, if you will. So not only that you believe something, but that what? You carry it out in your life. You stand firm. You don't fall. Okay, and so on here, some of you may recognize who this is. Um, maybe some younger, maybe some older. I don't know, but this is a guy named Jenny, Jimmy Donaldson, a.k.a. Mr. Beast. And he is a pretty famous guy on YouTube, right? Like some of y'all, you bet, yeah, you better have heard of him. He does contests for lots of money. He gives away a lot of money. And in this particular contest, these guys had to put their right hand, and that's important because most of us are right-handed, I think. <laughs> My dad was even made to be right-handed when he was in school. So for a long time, most people came out right-handed. You had to put your right hand. So four guys had a competition. The last person whose right hand leaves the box. So the guy who didn't move his hand gets a million dollars in cash. That is cash. It's 2,000 pounds, they said in the video, right? Now, there's a trick here. They're going to try to distract you, and they're going to try to get you to take your hand off, and as you stand, because you couldn't sit down, you had to stay standing the entire time. And so one guy in the middle of the night gets distracted, and his hand comes off because he's playing a game. He just forgets. His mind is not in it. Apparently, a million dollars to him is not that important. Okay, well, or maybe he just made a simple mistake. The other guys kind of go out, and the last guy that, that kind of is there, the, the two that are last, the last guy who takes his hand off, so the second place guy who didn't win, he just got really tired. And he'd been standing for 38 hours or, or a little more, 38 hours straight standing. Now, I think I want to correlate to that to what I'm going to say and what we're going to hear in the book of Philippians. The Christian life requires endurance. And we have to continue to stand firm. And we have something much more worthwhile than a million dollars. We were talking about that in worship service. Like that's one of the themes of Philippians. How much is Jesus worth to you? Stand firm. Like the guy who did, who made it almost 40 hours with his hand on the box, not getting distracted, not turning away, keeping his eyes on the prize. And so... Let me say a word of exhortation here to our church in particular before we read the first chapter. So you're about up, Nathan. When we think about standing firm, God has really been blessing our church. I think more people have heard Christ and people have gotten to know Christ more, both depth and breadth. I think you can see that. But we must continue by faith. We have to continue to stand firm. I think that is really what God wants us to hear through the book of Philippians, each one of us. I think there are four ways there, corresponding with the chapters, 
that the Lord Jesus wants us to hear, how you and I, from the youngest in here to the oldest, can continue to stand firm until God calls us home. And so listen for that in the book. I want you to listen for key phrases as we read through the book of Philippians today. What sticks out? Some of you could probably answer some of those today before we even open it. Awesome. And let it be an awesome reminder for you of God's work. also want you to think through key themes. Is there repeated phrases? Not just important ones. Important might mean that it is going to be repeated or not. But listen as we read for those things. And then finally... I want you to think about Paul's relationship with these people. Was it at a distance? Was, he, was, he, was it like the Corinthian church? Was he close to them? I think the language of Philippians will help you decide on your own, by God's Spirit, what that relationship was, and thus color how the book should be read. Okay, Nathan, let's go ahead and read chapter 1 of Philippians. And he's reading the ESV. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be, not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus 
because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So I think in chapter 1, Paul, writing by the power of the Holy Spirit, tells us that in order to stand firm, we must rejoice in the advance of the gospel, no matter what. I think we'll get to more of the details, but there are at least two things here that I think would be opposed to this idea, and they're both discouraging things. I think discouragement at circumstances can really cause believers to fall to waver in their faith, questioning the goodness of God and his providence. I'm sure that's happened to you. It's happened to me many times. God, what's going on here? But Paul says, hey, I want you to rejoice in the advance of the gospel no matter what. How does he, how does he flesh that out here just briefly? Well, a couple of things were going on apparently. Number one, this church, and I think you saw there and we'll see more later, had a great relationship with him. They loved each other. And I think they were probably tempted to be discouraged, and maybe even already were, that he's in jail. And not only that he's in jail, but that people are talking bad about him. It's like as a kid, you get in a car wreck, and everyone on social media is saying, oh, look at what that girl did. She just got in a car wreck. Ha, she's a terrible driver. Look at this Paul. He, God doesn't, he's not blessed by God. He's in jail. Man, I'm better than him. So you have these people that are apparently preaching the Philippians, telling them, we're better than Paul. And I think those are two things particularly that would tempt them to be discouraged, and maybe they already were discouraged. You think in your life, circumstances, difficulties, sickness, financial struggles, friendship struggles, whatever it is, let alone imagine if Tom got put in jail, or one of the others got put in jail for preaching the truth. We would have questions about that, and questions are legitimate, but don't let them turn into discouragement. And so Paul is writing to encourage them. And you see that where he says, you know what's, what's actually happening? Plan A. God's plan A, not B, not C, not D. The best thing. What has happened is really serving to advance the gospel. He says, rejoice in that. And then he says, you know what? Whether people are talking bad about me or not, I'm rejoicing. Because what? Christ is being preached. So I think that is the first way he says, you know what, you want to stand firm. You want to continue well in faith in Christ. Don't be discouraged. Rejoice when the gospel is preaching and advancing. And I think it is both more people hearing about Jesus, the imperial guard and others, but also people being deepened in their faith. Who? The Philippians. Because when they send, we'll get to it later. I don't want to give away too much. But when they send their worker, they hear back later that what is going on is actually through their gifts and their prayers advancing the gospel greatly. And you see at the end in chapter 4, he says, Caesar's whole household greets you, or those from Caesar's household. That's cool. It seems to me, maybe, that Paul being in prison was the way in which the gospel got into those areas of the world. And so Paul rejoices. And he says, hey, rejoice. And God's telling us, hey, rejoice in the advance of the gospel. 
no matter the circumstances. Okay, let's go ahead and read chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So here I see they would stand firm if they followed the pattern of joyful humility set out by others. And I think in this chapter, we have four examples of humility. Now, I think the reasoning chain for Paul goes this way. In order to stand firm in your faith, you have to do what? You have to be unified. You have to work together. You know what? There's nothing that crushes a group project more at work or at school than when people disagree, right? Like when you're going opposite ways, trying to accomplish the same thing. It's not going to work. 
But in order to be unified, you have to be what? Humble. And it's not just grudgingly humble, it's a joyful humility. And that's why Paul gives them four examples. And the first one, obviously, is Jesus Christ. His example of humility is supreme. John 13, he even told the disciples, I give you an example. And then he lists himself. Obviously, we'll get into these more. He says, you know what? I'm like a drink offering. What am I doing? I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it because I love you genuinely. My life is poured out for you, for your faith. Then he lists Timothy. And we'll get into it more, but they would have known Timothy very well. And what's said about Timothy sometimes even maybe brings you to tears. I know it has me thinking about the way Paul talks about him. He says, I have no one like him who genuinely cares for the interests of other people. Wouldn't you want God to say that of you in the end? That's an encouraging thing to me. And then Epaphroditus. And I find this one kind of funny. I was actually listening to a sermon on this, and it made me laugh out loud. Now, rarely I do that. And it, it kind of put this way. The guy preaching was saying, you know, what are we like when we're sick? We're like, oh, man, no one knows about my sickness. Woe is me. Man, why has no one called me to encourage me? Bring me food. I'm hungry. I'm dying. At least I know my wife makes fun of me like that when I'm sick. She's like, you're just a baby here. Like, what's wrong with you? And I had, I had to kind of reflect as I was reading this. Man, that's pride. If you look at Epaphroditus, what is he? He's the opposite. He's actually upset that they found out that he was sick and they were worried. That is a humility that brings unity in the body of Christ. That kind of selfless attitude that Epaphroditus had. And he had actually given up many, however long he's there, a lot of people vary on it, maybe a year even, given up his life to come and minister to Paul. Because as some, many of you know, in a Roman jail, ain't no one going to give you food unless you bring it yourself. You die if no one's taking care of you. And so Epaphroditus was ministering in that way even just his act of service, let alone how he thought about his own sickness. Paul's like, yeah, he was sick. He was almost dead. And he didn't even want you to know because you would be worried. Wow, those are great examples of humility and the way in which we should act to provide that kind of stability in a church, that endurance, the standing firm in one spirit. All right, chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who, mold, who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. 
Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So the Philippians and us too will stand firm if we really deeply and personally know Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. I think this is probably where Paul is driving here. And this is something only you can answer. But I would say if you don't know the Lord Jesus as Savior right now, none of this stuff applies to you. There's no blessing coming. There's only wrath from God and eternal separation. And so trust in him, not on your own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ that what? Paul says what depends on faith. And that's where knowledge of God starts is in Christ. And those, for, for those of us who are believers, there is no way we can compromise on this. And we even talked about it today in worship. You must know Jesus Christ deeply and personally. You cannot substitute this for anything else. I know in my own life, when I do, I fall. I feel it in my attitude, in my anger, in my coldness, in my shortness with my kids, my, in my pride. If you do not have that regular time alone with the Lord, if you are not seeking to know him, all the rest of this stuff Paul is going to say is useless to you. I really think. You must know him. That, that was the goal of Paul's life, was to know him. He says, this one thing I do is to know Jesus and to be found in him, essentially is what he's saying. No substitute. And I think what he's fighting here is this idea, not only outside the church, but maybe even creeping in, that it's Jesus plus something else. It's not. <laughs> It is not Jesus plus your works, Jesus plus your service, Jesus plus your family, Jesus plus anything else. You have to know him, to trust in him and walk with him by faith daily, both in salvation and sanctification. Jesus is the one to whom we must reckon. And, and this life is short. <laughs> and it could end tomorrow or today. You just don't know. But to know him is the only worthwhile pursuit. And Paul is saying to you and to me through God's spirit, Jesus' spirit today, what is he worth to you? Not just on Sunday at church. How much is he worth to you? Is he worth your life? And he concludes, and we'll, we'll touch on this in depth later, everything else is infinitely second. It's not Jesus and then something else close. It's Jesus and everything else infinitely second. And we have to get that right as a church and as believers to stand firm. Because things are going to assail that and Satan is going to attack and your flesh wants to rise up. 
and distract you from that most important thing. Like those guys, man, with their hands on that cash, it's a lot of money. And this is even more important, infinitely more important. Are we going to stand firm in our relationship with the Lord? That's the challenge in chapter 3 and really undergirds much of Philippians. All right, chapter 4. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thanks, guys. I think then the last chapter, the fourth kind of way that Paul says you can stand firm is to rejoice in God's provision. Now, I think there's a couple of things that are maybe generally a little hard to connect here. I don't know. Maybe you already made the connection. But there's the physical provision. He's thankful says, you know what, you gave many times, we'll go into that later, physically to support me, and I'm in need. But then it's not only the kind of the physical stuff, it's the spiritual needs, the relational needs that are really pointing to God in the way in which we interact with other people. Think about it. You got two people that are arguing. You ever been in a situation like that? Yeah. No? No? Okay. Well, God bless you. I need to be by you, Ken. My kids, this happens every day, <laughs> right? Like that is a great need. And we got two ladies in this book here who apparently are disagreeing. They're coworkers with him. 
And he says, you know what, my friend. I don't know if he left the name out because it's like an impossible task. Who knows? You got Clement, who's pretty famous too. But he's like, you know what? You need God to provide your needs in this thing that has come about because of pride. And so if we rejoice in God's provision, and I think here the pitfall, the temptation, is maybe in the way in which we recognize God's provision. Let me give you an example. My wife is an awesome cook. Seriously, I love it. And, and my kids are blessed to eat at our house. But they don't like everything that is put in front of them, as I'm sure has happened at your household. And often, for a while, they're like, oh, I hate this. And we were like, no, <laughs> you will eat it. And we're like, hey, instead of saying that, in fact, a story just came out. I got in the most trouble in my entire life, I think. I got a lot of swats. When I told my mom I hated her food, and I hope she burned herself. I remember that. I don't remember much, but... I was not joyful at the provision that my, my mom had given me. And we're like, and, and I think, you know, whether it's my kids or you looking at what God has given in you, you in your life, is it a joyful attitude we have with what he's given? Or is it a grudging acceptance of God's provision? Because if it's a grudging acceptance, if it is with complaining and grumbling and strife, you'll fall. You'll fall. And so Paul says, hey, to stand firm, rejoice in God's provision. Rejoice in what he's given you. It's good for you. My God will supply all your needs. I forget the psalm. I should remember it, but it says, God withholds no good from those who love him. That's the reality. Whatever he's given you, whether it's a disease that will last your whole life, a car wreck, Difficult friends, jail, struggles, financial or relationship-wise, they are for your progress and joy in the faith, and we should receive them with thankfulness. And, and, and doing that will cause us and you and me to stand firm. And I think <clears throat> this is a good way of looking at this. This is the National Corvette Museum in, I think it was April of 2014, a sinkhole opened up in Kentucky underneath, and they caught it on camera. Like the floor just starts to give away, and all these priceless Corvettes crash into the floor and are ruined. <laughs> and you can go look at it. They've actually turned it into like a museum, and it's been good for them, I think. I don't know. <laughs> but here, here's the point, I think, that connects. Just like this sinkhole opened up and wrecked all their their hard work of collecting these priceless Corvettes. I think the things which Paul is telling them can eat away at our, our Christianity, our trust in Christ without us even knowing it. And it can ruin a church, start to get proud, start to grudgingly accept what God has provided, start to veer a little bit off the gospel, think maybe you're the one in control of your life, not God. And before you know it, you've crashed and burned and made a shipwreck of faith. And so don't let those things erode at your foundation. And as we go, think about those ways in which we can stand firm. These are some key verses that I have here. They'll be available on the internet. Glenn is great to put them up. Um, and you can ask me for them too. But I think these are the ones that might stand as you think about the book of Philippians. You can take a picture with your phone. I see my dad doing that. Or you can just ask me for them later or whatever. I think uh, throughout 
you know, 127 and 4.1 kind of stand as bookends there. These are key verses, maybe even worthy of memory, if you do that kind of thing, which I hope you do. Um, providence. These are major themes. Providence. Um, what is behind all that happens in life? I think that's a theological underpinning. In other words, what does God want us to know about who he is through the book of Philippians? Providence. His purposeful sovereignty. That's uh, a good definition. His purposeful control. Second, the value of Christ. Central to Philippians. What, how much is he worth to you and to me? Joy. And the first two were there, but the last one was a late addition. And I think this is the core. Actually, it's the best of them all. Why is joy so crucial to the Christian life, to the life of walking with Jesus? I think that may be the best question regarding joy. The others are there. How do we get it? What produces it? But why is it so important? 16 times in the book of Philippians, actually. Um, two different verbs and the adjective it's used. So that's over about four a chapter. It is four a chapter. Um, fourth, humility. And I want to tackle this question. So you can pray for me on that. <laughs> in chapter two, um, is God humble? And how can I be more humble? I crossed that off. <laughs> humble. How can I be humble? Because more? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> just humble. Like, that's my prayer. Right? Not more humble. Just humble. Unity. This gets down to the, to the brass tacks, to use an old phrase. Nitty-gritty. How can I get along with other people in the church? How does that work? And then peace. How can I live at peace in difficult circumstances? in jail, or when all of my life seems upside down and my kids are against me, maybe there's been a divorce, maybe there's difficulty in your family, or not. Get, how can I live at peace in those circumstances when God seems to be against me? Okay, final thing here for us today. I did this with a middle school, and I'm not going to make you do the actions, but I think Sam Carell and Sage Warner could get up here and do them now. So it was useful. I had them do actions with these phrases, okay? So I think they'd remember them. It stuck with me. Um, I, won't, I won't even do them for you embarrass myself. However, I think there are three kind of catchphrases. The first one is joy from progress. Joy from advancement of the gospel. He says your progress in the faith. And we'll unpack that. But joy from progress, unity from humility, and Christ above all. And if you were to have these in your mind, maybe you hate them, maybe you got better ones, but I think it's important to be able to give an account to others, and even in our minds, hey, what's the book of Philippians about? Daniel were to have a friend ask him, hey, what is Philippians about? Or you could think, why does God want, is, is God humble? Why does he want us to be humble? Is that a good thing? You know what, the book of Philippians talks about that. Having something small, memorable in our minds that brings us to a book of the Bible by the Spirit of God, of course, is a good strategy, I think. And so these are the ones I kind of gave the middle school. Joy from progress, unity from humility, and Christ above all. And that is what I hope overall as a, as a catchphrase gets in your heart and minds in the next few weeks by the grace of God. All right, why don't we ask the Lord to work in our hearts and minds. Heavenly Father, thank you for the joy that we have in Christ. Thank you that I can look around and see just joyful, the joyful progress of the, of the gospel in CBC. I just pray that we would stand firm. Pray that I would 
along with everyone here, evaluate Christ's worth properly. That we would say no to sin and yes to him because he is infinitely more valuable than anything this world has to offer. And that we would know him outside of the walls here, that we would, that we would trust in him every day. And it is in his name that I pray. Amen.